million cancer survivors living in the U.S. We all have stories of how cancer has impacted our communities. And as occupational therapy practitioners, we yearn for our loved ones and our patients to be receiving the best care possible when a diagnosis of cancer is made. But unfortunately, the research that we are going to look at today makes it pretty clear that there is a sobering number of adults living with cancer who have unmet therapy needs. In particular, the research is going to highlight the large percentage of individuals who report difficulty with their ADLs and IADLs. And we'll hear how the authors highlight that there is just a clear need for more OT services with this population. After spending a little time on this research today, it is our honor to be having on our guest, Vanessa Monique Yanez, OTRL. Vanessa is herself a cancer survivor, which fuels her dedication to improving the quality of life for other cancer patients. Vanessa currently runs her own private practice, which is focused on cancer rehab. And she has valuable insight for us today related to assessment and treatment of cancer patients. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT research and then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into our topic of OT for adults with cancer, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain continuing education credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. I'll give you more details on how you can sign in or sign up to take a test and generate a certificate once we get to the end of this episode. But bearing in mind that this could serve as a continuing education course for you, I wanted to explicitly state our two learning objectives so that you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the most commonly affected ADLs and IADLs in adults living with cancer. And secondly, you will be able to recognize common assessments to guide your treatments with cancer patients. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring on Vanessa to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. So the article that we are looking at today is Disability in Activities of Daily Living Among Adults with Cancer, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. It comes to us from the journal Cancer Treatment Reviews. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 34th on our list of the 100 most influential OT research articles. So the article starts out with kind of this big picture cancer rehab overview. And the authors start out by reminding us that advances in screening tools and therapeutics have led to cancer survivors living longer, which is certainly a step in the right direction. But these survivors also frequently report sustained symptom burden, exercise intolerance, and physical deconditioning. And all these issues can threaten everyday independence by hindering ADL and IADL performance. From there, the authors talked about what research has already been done around cancer rehab and ADLs. And the authors here define disability as the need for increased assistance or having difficulty with at least one ADL. And in the general population, they found that increased ADL assistance is associated with both reduced quality of life and increased risk of mortality. And with this stark evidence in mind, the authors remind us that where disability relating to ADLs exists, addressing it should be a core goal of clinical management. Multiple prior studies have looked at ADL disability in cancer patients and survivors. So since this is such an important topic, multiple prior studies have already looked at ADL disability in cancer patients and survivors, but the studies varied pretty widely in the specific patients and the settings that were assessed. And until this paper, no one had systematically reviewed the evidence around ADL-related disability in adults living with cancer, which leads us to our research question and why this paper was written. The authors undertook this systematic review to determine the prevalence of ADL disability in adults living with cancer and to describe the most commonly affected basic ADLs and instrumental ADLs within this group. 
To achieve this, the articles that were utilized in this systematic review all included the following. First, they involved adults being defined as ages 18 or older with a primary diagnosis of cancer. And all the research had a measure of ADL disability. The studies were excluded if they included cancer survivors. As the author said, there was no universal agreement defining the parameters of the term survivor. And as a result, the participants included in this research were all adults that were living with cancer as an active primary diagnosis. The authors reviewed many different study designs in their research, and this included prospective and retrospective observational studies, cohort studies, cross-sectional studies, longitudinal studies, case series, and chart reviews. So what were the results of this systematic review? There were 43 studies included in this review, which when added together involved 19,246 patients. 18 of the studies related to basic ADL disability and had their results pooled for a meta-analysis, and 15 studies were related to instrumental IADLs, and these results were also pooled. The assessments should look pretty familiar to you as an occupational therapist, and some of the most common ones that they used were the 36-item short-form health survey, the functional independence measure, the Karnofsky performance scale, the CATS ADL, and the lot in instrumental activities of daily living scale. When the data was pooled, the mean prevalence of disability related to basic ADLs was 30%, and the mean prevalence of disability related to IADLs was 55%. So about a third of the adults living with cancer were having some sort of disability with their ADLs, and over half reported some level of disability with their IADLs. Among the eight ADLs that were assessed, disability-related personal hygiene was the most common, followed by walking, transfers, and bathing. And among the eight IDLs that were assessed, disability-related housework was the most common, followed by shopping and transportation. So what did the authors discuss and conclude from this research? Most importantly for us as OTs, the authors asserted that the findings from this research highlight the substantial need for rehab services that, quote, focus on maintaining functional independence and underscore an important role for professionals skilled in occupational assessment and therapy, end quote. So this paper really illustrated with its data the need for occupational therapy for cancer patients. And to help us understand that need a little bit more and then unpack what occupational therapy treatment could look like, it is my honor to be having on Vanessa Monique Yanez. Vanessa is an occupational therapist with a specialization in oncology. She completed a master's degree in occupational therapy from California State University, Dominguez Hills, and is currently pursuing a PhD from Texas Women's University. She holds a faculty position at the University of St. Augustine and runs a private practice in San Antonio. Vanessa is dedicated to developing clinical programs to expand the role of occupational therapy in the emerging area of oncology and is a frequent presenter at state and national conferences. As a cancer survivor, Vanessa understands the challenges of a cancer diagnosis, which fuels her dedication to improving the quality of life of other survivors. Her clinical practice and research are focused on hematological cancers, stem cell transplants, as well as mental health, sexuality, and theory-driven practice within oncology. So without further ado, it is my honor to have on Vanessa. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. It's so great to have you here today. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to be talking about cancer care. Yeah, I've been reflecting on this topic a lot today. I've actually even been texting with a friend of mine whose father-in-law is going through some tough cancer treatments right now and just thinking about how it seems like we all have stories of how cancer has touched our lives and the lives of our loved ones. And this is an area as OTs where we have a lot to offer, but a lot of us haven't fully perhaps developed a cancer rehab skill set yet. So I was so excited to discover your work and find you as someone who could hopefully just give us a little more confidence when we do see cancer patients. So I was wondering if you could start us off by just telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to work in oncology OT. 
So my journey in OT really started with my own personal experience. When I was 19, I was diagnosed with cancer. And that was right after my first year in college. And I had this newfound independence that was suddenly lost. I was admitted to ICU right after um, having some symptoms. And then I went through multiple rounds of inpatient chemotherapies. And, And I also had a bone marrow transplant from a person. And that whole process was a really long recovery process that I thought initially will end after ending the bone marrow transplant. I thought I would just go back to normal after that and go back to my normal life. And that was not the case. And that's uh, something that a lot of survivors also experience after ending services where they're done and they may be under the impression that they're going to go back to normal life. And that's not really the case. And so I had a ton of services while I went through my experience. I was hospitalized at City of Hope Cancer Center in Duarte, California, and they're comprehensive cancer hospital. And I had several services from physical therapy, occupational therapy, recreational therapy, social work, psychology, and they were all amazing. But I really was able to connect with occupational therapy because they were the ones that explained to me and and gave me hope that I would be able to live a good life afterward. Mm. So I wanted to do that with other people too. And, you know, once I got well, I was able to go back to school and I ended up doing my level two rotation at City of Hope as well. That was just an incredible experience to be able to work with the same therapist, with some of the nurses, my own doctor as well, Mm. and being on the other side of, of healthcare. And after completing level two, they invited me to come back and and work full time. And so most of my experience has been exclusively working in cancer care. And so I got to be there for a number of years living in California. And then I moved to San Antonio, Texas, and I worked for the Methodist healthcare system here. And there's several acute care hospitals. And the one I particularly worked at had an oncology unit. So I got to uh, use my skills there for a couple of years. And then now I am in private practice where I continue to see adults with cancer too. So that's a little bit about my background. And I've worked uh, primarily in acute care, but also outpatient, telehealth, inpatient rehab, so in different settings, but with the same population. And it's been incredibly rewarding to work with these individuals where we're able to connect at a personal level and, and share our experiences. And I think a lot of people, even that do not have a diagnosis of cancer, have been touched by cancer, whether it's a family member or a friend or an acquaintance, we we hear stories of resilience and incredible strength and as well as sadness. And there's just so many emotions involved. So I think a lot of us are able to connect with each other through mm-hmm. her. Yeah, how meaningful for your patients to have an OT come in who's been through her own cancer journey and can speak so personally to what they're going through. I'm curious, when you saw OT back when you were 19 or 20, you said that service really stood out to you. Do you feel like it was like the therapy they were providing? Was it their caring attitude or was it really how they helped paint a vision of where you could get to in the future? Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I felt that there were one of the few disciplines that saw me as a person within this healthcare world. They were the ones that sat next to me, you know, on my bed and they looked at me eye to eye and they told me what was going on. They were trying to explain things to me that were pretty hard to explain at times to a 19 year old. And and I think they also gave me a lot of hope that there was a future for me. I think in, in those moments, there's definitely the uncertainty of life and you don't know what life is going to look like afterwards. And so to have someone help you paint a picture of what could be possible in the future after cancer, I think that was really powerful and inspiring to know mm-hmm. that, okay, I can definitely get through this with other people helping me out. And I 
am able to to move on and fulfill my dreams and, and live alive and be able to get married and to go to school to do the things that I enjoy. And I think that was a really powerful motivator for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so powerful that keeps coming up on the podcast that being a, helping people like paint that future vision when they're in a really hard time, it's hard to see past that. And I hear that and I'm like, that's a skill set that all OTs can bring to all of our patients. You don't have to be a cancer rehab expert to sit with someone and listen to them and help them just like think through the next stages. Like that's, yeah, we all have that skill set and it's so needed. And I think sometimes we forget that in our day-to-day practice, how unique that is in the medical system, that we're one of the few disciplines to walk through the door that can take the time to sit down and really understand the individual like that. Yeah, it's so true. I think a lot of us have experienced different types of pain, whether it's cancer, non-cancer pain, whether maybe it would have been through Uh, delivery of a child or pain of a chronic issue. I think we've all been through similar emotions. And so we can connect with a lot of patients through Mm -hmm. through that. Well, I definitely today want to hear more just about the particulars of the cancer care that you provide in your practice. But to kind of jumpstart us, I wanted to talk a little bit about the article that we reviewed. This was actually the second article that I've reviewed in the club that was like this, where they did the systematic review and found all these unmet needs for cancer patients. And in the previous article I had looked at, they had also surveyed to see how many of those unmet needs were being met by therapy professionals, and it was only 9% of the need. So the need is huge. What were your takeaways from this article? Did that did it align with what you see in cancer care? Definitely. Definitely. The results were that about half to one third or one third to one half of these individuals were experiencing difficulty with self-care and instrumental activities of daily living. And that's really what we see in practice as well. A lot of individuals being left with impairments and difficulty performing everyday activities. So I was not surprised to see this really large number. And I also feel that a lot of individuals are aware of it too. A lot of survivors know that they're having these limitations, but they don't know of the services that are that are out there that can help them. In oncology, it's still struggle. Like we're still having to educate doctors and nurses exactly what we do. And it's still frustrating where they refer to us as, as upper body people. Yes. <laughs> um, but I really try to take that opportunity to educate them, say, you know, that is something we do, but that's a little part of everything we're able to do and then jumpstart the conversation. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but this article is really testament of large need that these individuals have after undergoing cancer treatment, that there's still a lot of deficits, occupational deprivation, limitations, not just for themselves, but even those around them are having a hard time, such as caregivers and family and friends and and their children too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I read this article, it reminded me of when I was working in an outpatient clinic and I would probably only get a referral of a cancer patient like once a year. And I would always get really nervous because I would feel sometimes like ill-equipped to meet their needs because I always thought of them as being really specific. Mm -hmm. But this article made me stop and think like with the difficulties with ADLs and IADLs, that's really our bread and butter as OTs and something that we can, should feel confident jumping in and helping with. But I guess one of the questions I did have for you is, do you think for OTs to start jumping into this area more that we need to start with specialty training or what's like the starting point for seeing more cancer patients? That's a really good question. I think that the core of OT services, that skill set that we have from school, which is helping and facilitating occupational adaptation, 
that's the same in whichever setting we work mm-hmm. in, whichever population we work in, we have that skill set that's really powerful. That is a lot of what we do. So we know about activity analysis. We know about taking a comprehensive approach to being client-centered. So all of that is very much applicable to oncology. I do feel that it is also important to have some background information about the setting too, in combination to your experience. But I think that a lot of people have already a lot to bring in Mm -hmm. into oncology. So it doesn't take a whole lot more training to see clients with cancer care. But I would say that, you know, trying to have an understanding of the context of oncology. So what does that mean for patients? What are their experiences? What are common diagnoses? What are some of the common symptoms, the limitations that we frequently see, their prognosis? So I think it is important to have an understanding about cancer and then tying that to your experience as a clinician and and using all that skill set that we already have training in already. Mm -hmm. In your clinic, are those some of the most common unmet needs that you're seeing are related to those ADLs and IADLs, or do you feel like you spend more time with more specialty treatments? It depends within the population in in oncology. I think we do see more of the ADLs, IADLs, limitations with those that are going through, through surgery where it's pretty obvious that right after surgery, they're experiencing uh, difficulty getting up, functional transfers, getting up to the sink, taking a shower. And then there's precautions at times in place that also need to be considered too. But again, it's the same thing that we we do our bread and butter. So with some populations, a lot of what I, I would do is ADLs and IADLs. But then there's other populations, like let's say for those that have blood cancer that are coming in for chemotherapy or like a bone marrow transplant radiation, where they also have difficulty with self-care, but there's other issues going on too. So they might be experiencing problems with with the energy level, experiencing cancer-related fatigue. They might be having chemo brain, so those cognitive changes. They might be having issues with the way they see themselves, so body image concerns and their appearance drastically changing at times Mm -hmm. too. So it could be a combination of many things. And and it does feel at times like there's so many issues going Mm -hmm. on, but it's not just self-care, getting up and transferring. It, It can feel like this like sewer or like this monster to tackle, like, where do I even start? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many things to go on. And I think when I first started, that was really how I felt. I'm like, there's like 15 things to tackle. Like, where do I start in all of this? And and then I was really um, reminded of just taking that client-centered approach and asking them, like, where do you want to start? So these are the issues that we've been talking about. And maybe they're already part of a assessment. And I frequently use a COPM. So that's a really great way to also prioritize some of the problems, but really, you know, just having the conversation with patients and saying, what is the most important thing to you? Where do you want to start in in this therapy process? And a lot of them already know, like they will tell you, Mm. like, you know, I, this is where I want to go. And um, the surprising thing is that it's not necessarily always ADLs. Like I've had patients where they tell me, you know, Vanessa, I I have my mom who, who will be able to help me in the shower and she's going to cook for me, but I'm a grad school and I'm a grad school student. And my issue right now is trying to focus and complete Mm -hmm. activities um, so I can um, finish my homework and complete my degree. So this is where I want to work in right now. Uh, So let's start with cognition and then maybe towards the end, we'll finish with EDLs. So I'm always surprised by that of how things are reprioritized for for patients. But I think that's the beauty of OT that we're able to to see that and, and be centered. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig a little bit more into like the assessment part of your sessions in just a little bit, but I also wanted to go back to, you had mentioned earlier about talking to doctors and getting that initial referral. And I was wondering if you could speak to just getting those initial referrals and your experience with our patients asking for these referrals. Are they automatically coming from their doctors? What's kind of that first initial process there? I I think for a lot of patients, they don't know definitely 
of, of our services, uh, whether it's acute care or, or outpatient. So there's a lot of education on my end on what I can do for them. So if I'm seeing them inpatient and I think they will still benefit from outpatient, I do have a conversation with them where there's this continuity of care um, and I can follow them along their, their journey. I think with physicians, one of the things that I do is trying to fill or trying to identify what is the need. So how can I help them? Because they already have so much to do, mm-hmm. so much that's going on and they're prioritizing the life of their patients. So for me, my approach is tackling a lot of those quality of life issues that are major concerns for patients and addressing those with the physicians. So very common things are fatigue and cognitive issues where it's impacting their it's impacting their health. So maybe because of cognitive issues, they're forgetting to show up to appointments or they're not taking their medication as prescribed. Mm. So that's a major concern for the physician. Like they want those issues addressed so the patient's able to follow up with their medical plan. Uh, same thing with fatigue. You know, if they're having a hard time, you know, getting things done, then that's a major issue. And we know that there's a correlation between functional limitations and, and mortality. So if someone mm-hmm. is not doing well functionally, they're at higher risk of mortality. So for a physician, that's really important to know. So I, I take the extra time to educate on what we know as OT and try to see where is the big need for them and how can we fit it into their need. And then there's other things that I'm able to address once I have that referral. So once mm-hmm. I know, okay, that that for them, that fatigue, ADLs, IADLs are important, cognition, then I can work on other things that I also believe are really much important, like body image, sexual functioning, emotional distress, mental health. But I already have that order and we can work in that with, with the patient. And then I'll, I'll follow up with the doctor and say, hey, you know what we did we did work on ADLs they're doing a lot better but we also worked on mental health this is what we've been doing and the patient is reporting that they're feeling better they're more satisfied they're coping better as well so it's it's a lot of back and forth and and good communication with with the medical team Mm -hmm. yeah I definitely think back on that outpatient clinic that I mentioned earlier and that I wasn't seeing that many cancer patients, that was definitely a failure on my part to be communicating with our physicians more that that was a population that I could have been serving. And in my experience, it really does just take getting in touch with your physician and letting them know that that's an area you can work in because you know they can see glimmers of those things in their visits and they just don't have time to dive into those quality of life issues like we do. And I think also in, in outpatients, a little harder to to see some of the medical team, like the physician, the MP, because you're mm-hmm. just in different spaces too. Yeah. As opposed to acute care in that setting, you're seeing them on a daily basis. They're doing rounds. You could spot them from the corner of your eye. You can approach them. So I think it's easier to communicate in, in acute care or inpatient setting, whereas outpatient or community-based, it's a lot harder. But they do want to know about their patients. So I feel like if I can just make that phone call and say, Hey, this is how they're doing. This is a progress or, or this is a concern. Maybe they're not taking their medication for another reason out of my control. Then I just follow up with the physician or send them a quick email or her a quick email on what's going on, just keeping them in the loop. Yeah. So once you do get that referral and you're seeing the patient for the first time, what does that initial assessment of evaluation look like for you? I feel like you touched on this a little bit, but could you walk me through that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. So I have to start by saying that I'm notorious for really long <laughs> evaluations, very comprehensive. And I've been told by a lot of people that I'm very much detailed oriented my <laughs> evaluations. But I, I do have to explain why and just the way I was trained and, and where I worked. My documentation was useful for a lot of researchers because it was a research hospital. Mm. So I knew that a lot of physicians and researchers were looking into my notes and and so I, I wanted to be as detailed as possible. And for me, since I was seeing some of these individuals over a long span of time, I wanted to get as much baseline data too. So, yes. <laughs> so for me, I, I'm notorious for that and I'm working on it. I am. I really am. But it, it's hard to deviate from that because it's just, I, I'm so, it's so ingrained in me by this point. But I look at 
similar to other populations, other settings, I'm getting their occupational profile. So I want to know what is their diagnosis, what sort of treatment they're receiving right now, or what sort of treatment they'll be receiving in the near future, any anticipated length of stay, medical comorbidities, precautions, prior level function. So similar to other occupational profiles, but I'm using several assessments and I do have some favorite ones. Mm. The COPM is a really great one, I think, in my opinion, because it gives us that subjective information and it helps the client prioritize a lot of the issues, which makes it easier for me in developing goals and a treatment plan. But I'm also looking at ADLs, functional mobility, medication management, so a lot of those IADLs, home management, work and school. So some assessments that can be used, you know, could be like FIM, uh, the CATS index. To get a, a global perspective, I might use the MoHost as well. I'm a MoHo therapist, so I definitely love a lot of their tools. Um, so I frequently use the MoHost, the role checklist, the modified interest checklist as well. Let's see, for physical aspect of the individual, I'm looking at range of motion, strained, endurance, looking at some of the physical symptoms from chemotherapy or any treatment. So I'm wondering if they have fatigue, uh, cancer-related fatigue, if they're experiencing any pain as well, any surgical pain, physical pain from metastasis. I'm also looking at neurologically at their cognitive level. I might use the MOCA or the fat cog visual perceptual sensory motor some of our patients might experience chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy so that's mm-hmm. something i want to look at i also add a couple other things i love to look at lifestyle so what is their activity level like because we know in oncology that being active is so beneficial physically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. cognitively. So I want to know like, what was their activity level before their lifestyle? How is it now after cancer? What is their diet like? You know, what are they eating? How often are they eating? What sort of quality foods are they incorporating? Their sleep. Sleep can be another major issue aside from even cancer, like just being in a hospital, say, and, and so many noises and uh, people checking in for uh, vitals, all of that yes. can really help sleep. And, and a lot of these symptoms are impacting each other. So if someone's not getting a good quality sleep, that could impact their fatigue level, that can impact their mood. So I'm um, seeing the relationship between all of these. But uh, towards the end of my eval, I, I leave the more personal um, questions towards the end. Mm-hmm. So for me, that is typically related to mental health, body image, and, and sexual functioning. So I want to know if there's any psychiatric history. What is their current distress level? What sort of support system do they have? Is it a good supportive system? Do they have any potential caregivers as well in place? Because if, if they're requiring help with ADLs, then we're going to have to identify some individuals. And then if they're going through a bone marrow transplant, for example, we definitely want a full-time um, caregiver for them when they're going home. I'm asking questions about how they perceive their body, you know, what sort of changes, loss of hair, hyperpigmentation of the skin, and how is that affecting their ability to go out, to go back to work or to go grocery shopping if they're self-aware of these these issues too. Do you have a standardized assessment for that or do you just ask about, yeah, how do you phrase that? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really interesting. I mean, I love asking these questions. And this is one of the areas that I'm really interested in as a clinician and a researcher. It depends on the setting. So if I'm an acute care setting and I have limited time, I might just do screeners and just these questions like, hey, can you tell me more about how you feel in your body? What sort of changes have you been experiencing? Mm-hmm. Has cancer impacted your intimate life, your relationship with your partner? So I keep those questions very much open-ended. And then they could just fill in the rest. Outpatient, I, I do tend to use assessments for those. There is one, trying to remember the name of it, Pavlovich, that's her name. She's published her work 
when she was at AOTA as well, where she talked about this questionnaire that she developed. So it's it's a Pavlovich sexuality questionnaire. And I, I really like that because it's simple, it's straight to the point. Mm. And, and with a lot of these topics, I think if someone's uncomfortable with asking these questions, it might be noticeable to you if you're trying to sort of beat around the bush. Yeah. And with that approach, patients might feel uncomfortable to responding to it. So I'm pretty straightforward with my questions too. And, and I like like the way this questionnaire is set up to be as well, but the Pavlovich sexuality questionnaire will have, um, it will define sexuality for the person. It will have them rate their self-esteem. Let's see. And it asks about how have any recent changes in your life affected the way you view your body? How is your currently your intimate relationships? So it's pretty straightforward and to the point. And I think for outpatient, this is a really great mm-hmm. um, assessment to use. And I've received orders exclusively just for sexual functioning. Just to do this. Like I've yeah. had doctors put an order just for that. And then we'll, throughout the, the interview and that first evaluation, you know, sometimes we pull other things as well. So they might be going through mental health concerns or, or other things associated with um, body image and sexuality that we can tackle as OTs. But this is something that at City of Hope, we were trying to really establish the, this program of, of sexuality. So mm. a lot of physicians were, were aware of it and they were giving us these referrals exclusively for sexuality. Yeah, I love your eval because they sound so in-depth and comprehensive. I had just a couple more questions about them, actually. Are you having them pause to fill out any of these self-reports or are you asking all the questions yourself during the eval? I'm asking the questions. Yeah. And I think part of that's because I I want them to feel that I'm comfortable addressing Mm -hmm. this. Yep. And that I'm open for them to say anything they want. And there's times where there's some surprising things. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and unexpected things, too, where, where in my mind, I'm like, whoa, like she just went there. He just went there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking back at times. There, there's a few times. And, and it took a while. I think for a lot of people, when you get started, it could feel uncomfortable. So I did practice a lot. And, and I just made it a habit as well of asking. And I think just even screeners is a really great way to get started with mm-hmm. very intimate and personal questions. It's just saying, hey, can you tell me more? about how cancer has affected your relationship or your sex life. And, you know, believe it or not, I've had the majority of patients open up. I can only think of one or two out of thousands of patients that have said, you know, I don't want to talk about this, but they are open to education later down the road. So it's literally one or two patients out of hundreds and thousands potentially of, of patients that I've been seeing for in general mm-hmm. or have these screeners. So most people do want to talk about it because there are a lot of side effects that could be impacting relationships, communication, their sex life. So it's a topic that people are interested in. And we know as OTs that intimacy is really associated with relationships. And when someone is going through cancer, they need a good social support system. Mm-hmm. And so that is correlated with intimacy, relationships, and, and their sex life. Yep. So it's something that I make a habit of always screening for. Yeah. Another question that popped to my mind as you're asking about so many different areas, are there specific things that you'll encounter that you automatically like refer out for, or you're like, oh, I need to loop in another team member because you are seeing, could potentially be seeing someone with so many different needs. What are those things for you and what could they be for other OTs that don't have the same level of experience that you have? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that's almost after every single session or eval, mm. I feel like I'm doing a lot of coordinating your services mm. because I know that as an OT, there's a lot to tackle. And, and we know from research that the multidisciplinary approach is the best approach to patient care. So for me, it is important to bring other disciplines and to be mindful of my, my scope of practice. So mm-hmm. let's say for sexuality, if I know there's any trauma 
you know, involved, definitely bring in psychology and social work. If there's any discord between a couple, I also bring in social work. And at City of Hope, they have really good services for, for couples. They have couples therapy in a group setting and an individual setting too. So just roping in all of these services, inpatient and also outpatient too. So I bring in psych, social work, uh, psychiatry, there's times where, you know, it's also very difficult to for parents to talk to children about what's going on, especially if they're away from home for months. So there's another service for children, and I'm trying to remember the name, Child Life Services, Child Life Services, or any other supportive services. So it might be palliative, supportive care. So I, I do feel that at times I can spend a great time trying to reach and coordinate all of these services and putting in those orders and and then notifying the physician too and letting them know like this is it's a really complex situation and we do need all hands on deck for this client to really try to be as comprehensive so i'm really a big believer in bringing in everyone and having that communication where i can check in and say hey you know how did the eval go this is why i put in the order this is what the client said and i and i felt it was really important to for you to know and and just going back and forth there yeah. So you've done this awesome eval. You've referred out things that might be outside your scope of practice. Sounds like your treatment sessions are probably super varied depending on who you're seeing and in what setting. But could you give us a general sense of some of your most common symptoms then that you're then addressing and what those interventions look like? Sure. I think the biggest thing would be fatigue. Fatigue is a really, it's really common across all uh, cancers for the most part and at different stages of their treatment um, or their cancer care continuum. So that's uh, probably one of the most common symptoms that could really impact everyday life from being able to get up in the morning to getting dressed. You might physically be, be able to get dressed, but it's just slow to do those things. Yeah. So I remember even for myself, those first couple of years experiencing with severe cancer-related fatigue, you know, it, it would take me an hour and a half, two hours to get ready because I felt like, okay, I put on my shirt, take a breather. Yeah. Now I need 10 minutes <laughs> to, to try to relax. And then before I put on my pants and then, and then that was like another hurdle in itself. And then I need another break from that. And, mm-hmm. and so something that could take most of us now 15, 30 minutes to get ready could be exponentially longer for, for a cancer patient. And that's not accounting for other more high level activities, like you know, taking care of the kids and going to work and driving, grocery shopping. So fatigue, is a large one, a large issue that could just filter into your entire day. And you're just, you're mindful of it too. You're always aware of your energy level. So with a lot of my patients, the first thing that I do is explain to them what is going on. So what is cancer related fatigue and how is this different from feeling tired? You know, for, for a lot of people that are healthy, it's quite normal to do something and you work out or you had a rough day where you had so many errands and then you come back and you're tired. And that's that's very normal. But for someone with cancer-related fatigue, they could be in bed for days. Mm-hmm. They could be sitting down, not doing any work, and they could be extremely fatigued. So explain to them that they're, it's real. I, I, that's the first thing I do is validate, yeah. let them know that they're not lazy because that's the perception from a lot of people and family members is like, Hey, why are you being lazy? And I'm like, no, no, they're not being lazy. Like physiologically, something is happening to their body as a result of cancer treatment. So the first thing I do is validate that and explain the difference between fatigue, cancer related fatigue, and the sense of tiredness that a lot of people experience. And even within fatigue, there's different layers of it. There's this physical fatigue where we do feel sluggish. And then there's the emotional fatigue where we're just exhausted emotionally. Sometimes we can't hold long conversations with people. Mm-hmm. And then there's this like, cognitive fatigue as well, where your brain is just zapped. You're like, I can't 
focus anymore or I'm having a hard time um, paying attention to this conversation or multitasking. So having to break it down for patients and then going through a lot of the potential things that could be helpful, whether it's increasing activity, energy conservation, relaxation, sleeping better. So we'll dive into those lifestyle factors as well. So I try to first review a lot of the possible interventions and then see where they want to start. Because for some people, they might be like, you know what, it's not a good time to change my eating habits. Right now, that might take a lot of work or, you know, I'm not quite ready to start an activity program this next week. But maybe let's talk about relaxation techniques. Like what can I do to help me cope with fatigue in itself? And then that emotional component of fatigue. So there's times where they want to start small and and that's okay. And I still continue with the education of, okay, this is really helpful. Good. Let's move on to the next thing. And and activity is a big one. And I stay stay away from the word exercise because a lot of people hate that word. Yeah. So like I never say exercise, even though the research, it all says exercise. exercise yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, most people do not, do not like that. So I definitely use activity. So I'm like, let's find something that you like that moves your body. Like, what about dancing? What about playing like, uh, uh, what's it called? Not mini golf. Um, like, in, Table in your, like when you just hit the ball, like when you're playing golf, um, and then you try to hit into the hole. Like, uh, putt-putt? Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm like, what can we do? Let's find something that we can get you up and, and moving mm-hmm. a little bit, whether it's just stepping up, um, stepping outside your room and going to the lobby and sitting there, or um, let's dance or let's come up with a routine together. So I've had a lot of dance sessions. My yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's something that a lot of people like to do. Or, hey, like, let's get you to play with your grandchildren. Like, they're going to come and visit soon. So what can you do? That could be fun for both of you that we're still mindful and you're safe, but you're moving around. So making those, those plans with them and setting goals where they can, they can be a little bit more active and then we'll just move from there. Yeah. Do you feel like most of the time you're like talking through a plan that then they'll carry out later or are you actively doing those things in your session? It depends on the patient. I've had some really great patients that they are self-accountable, mm-hmm. that they're like, okay, let's go over it once. Let's set our goals. And normally I use smart goals. So let's set our goals and then I'll do them and then I'll come back to you and then we'll we'll see what worked and, and what didn't work. So it's a lot of troubleshooting afterwards. And then you have other patients that they do want to go through it. And so I do try to take the time to try to figure out what is the, the best approach to, to whatever goal they want to do and guide them step by step so some people need their hands to be held the whole time and then others are like just I'm independent I'm going to do it I'll come back and let you know how it goes so I think it just it really depends um, on the patient and, and trying to figure out what is the the best approach with them so it's it's it just it really depends mm-hmm. yeah I feel like that covers fatigue and multiple other areas but are there other common interventions that you do too yeah, I would say if I am with a surgical patient, it is a lot of ADL, self-care, mm-hmm. instrumental activities that they live in. So medication management, home management, cooking a meal, taking care of their children. If they're more high level, more high functioning, it, it could be fatigue. Pain is another one mm. as well. And I really love addressing pain because there's so many approaches as well for pain management. And I've spent like 10 sessions easily on just addressing pain outpatient mm. 10 hours. And I think it's very fun just to have those sort of back and forth interactions with patients and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Because a lot of what we do is OT is trial and error. Yeah. Like not everything is going to go down perfectly or ideally how we have it in our head. So it does require continuously problem solving and, and being okay with things not going as planned or potentially failing. We just try again and, and we do it differently. So I say fatigue, pain, cognition. I've also been doing groups and I love Oh, groups. awesome. <laughs> I love groups because a lot of what they're experiencing is 
validated and normalized in that setting. And they develop or are able to build connections with other people that are going through, through the same thing. One of my most favorite groups has been a sexuality group with only men. And that just happened. Yeah. (laughs) It, it, It just, it happened to be that way where like, Everybody that was available to come to the group were only males over 50. And me, and it was another occupational therapist, uh, Dr. Lynn Kim at City of Hope and myself, we went in and we're, you know, two girls in our thirties with all of these men. There was about eight men, like over 50. We're like, oh, I wonder how this is going to go. Like, how is this going to play out after all? But it ended up being one of the best sessions where everybody everyone opened up and they were vulnerable and it was emotional and it was powerful and they connected at such a deep and personal level. And I'm like, afterwards, I'm like, I I can't believe that just happened. Like it just breaks all these stereotypes. And so that was just a reminder to never make assumptions about patients and what could be their priorities or what they want to work on. Because, you know, just seeing the interactions between all of these men, it was just an amazing and powerful experience. Mm -hmm. I love how you're kind of putting yourself out there as a therapist and being vulnerable and willing to follow where the patient goes and, yeah, engage in these sensitive topics and see how the patient responds. I'm hearing about your sessions and they just sound so awesome. But I'm also wondering in the back of my mind about reimbursement, if you've ever had any difficulty getting reimbursed for the kind of work you do? Because it all feels very OT, but also feels a little different than what a lot of us get used to in our standard care. Like I've never done 10 sessions just focused on pain. Can you speak to that reimbursement part of it a little bit? Yeah, it's surprising that I think even up to this point in my career, I've never had any issues with Mm. reimbursement. We always get reimbursed for all our services. I I think what I found helpful is making sure that everything we do is tied to occupations, to what Mm -hmm. we do to the core of OT. So whatever goal that we're setting, it's tied to self-care or ideals or therapeutic activities. So those codes that we commonly use you know, 97535 for self-care. That's a big one that I use. So if I'm able to tie anything to self-care, let's say sexuality, you know, sex is part, is an ADL. Mm -hmm. So I just include that under that, under that code. The other code therapeutic activities, 97530 is another one for cognition, 97127. So I just make sure that everything we do, it's tied to occupation. So if it's cognition, specifically, how are we addressing cognition and how is that tied to occupations. So it might be being able to take their medication appropriately on time, the right dose. It might be working on meal preparation or home management task. Yeah, I feel like I haven't had any any issues to this point. So yeah, not even like any anything return like, hey, you need to yeah, that's awesome. tell me more about this. I'm like, no, I've never had any of those issues. And this is both inpatient acute care outpatient and telehealth. <laughs> so I think another part of it might be that I'm pretty detailed again in my documentary. <laughs> <Yes, that's, yeah. laughs> so they're like, oh, she's writing too much. I don't want to read it. Okay, pass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I always try to make sure that it's always connected to an occupation, whether it's self-care, ideals, work, school, community reintegration. It's always connected to that. Well, you've done so much to help demystify cancer rehab for me. Um, As I'm hearing you talk, I relate to so much of the work you're doing. It's so OT and so core to what we're all doing, but I love your courage and your vulnerability with your patients and just how you bring so much of yourself to your practice. If someone's like me where they are just if they're still just at the beginning stages of learning more about cancer care, do you have go-to resources that you would recommend to them? I'll also link them on our show notes so we don't need to spend a ton of time, but are there a couple that you would highlight? 
Yeah, there's several that I think are can be very helpful. But first, I do want to say, Sarah, I think that a lot of people feel the same way you do. And I know even for me in the beginning, that's the way I felt too. And, and I think one of the things that helped me remember that we're doing all right is, is again, just being occupation-based and also mm-hmm. knowing that a lot of what we're doing is, is trial and error and no one really has things figured out. Things are constantly changing in healthcare. Mm. Things are always changing in cancer care too. There's new treatments, new protocols, new studies. So there's there's a lot that is up and coming and, and we're just figuring things as we go. And even when talking to, to other therapists too, who have a lot of experience in oncology, I think fortunately, I think we serve as we're just helpful to one another. And we just have those conversations where we're like, Hey, like, this is how I address fatigue. Like, what are you doing with fatigue? And, and I feel like there's always something to learn from each other and things are always changing. And I personally feel like I never have it together hundred percent. I'm always (laughs) something new. (laughs) And, and that's, I think that's really, it's comforting to know that too. And, and it also, also to remember that OT or this practice setting oncology is still an emerging area in our, in our profession too. There's still so much to know, so much to learn. And fortunately we're having more evidence pop up. So in the last five, seven years, especially there's a lot that we're seeing from research coming in and these systematic reviews and meta-analysis and RCTs and case studies Mm -hmm. that could be helpful in painting the picture. But I just wanted to say that because I'm like, that's how I felt in the beginning too. (laughs) There's just so much to know. But I think if you just remember that it's okay to not know everything and that at the heart of it, you already have a skill set. You know, just finishing school, we all have that skill set already that we've learned, which is being occupation-based and client-centered. And that in itself is already a lot of what is needed to go into oncology. Mm-hmm. But in terms of resources, the NCCN is really helpful. So if you go to nccn.org, that stands for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. They're an alliance of 31 leading cancer hospitals in the country. And what they've done is they've gone together and they have recommendations for clinical guidelines. So you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I address fatigue or sexuality? They have these long documents with all of these possible disciplines Mm -hmm. um, that can address different aspects of these issues too. So I I, I highly recommend to go in and it's free as well. You just have to make an account with them. For assessments, there is the facet.org. So facet stands for functional assessment of chronic illness therapy. And they have so many validated mm. tools there. And there's some uh, specific to certain populations within oncology. So for individuals undergoing uh, bone marrow transplant, they have assessment tools for specific symptoms like fatigue as well, or like general quality of life. Um, measures. So I recommend to go in there and get some assessments and they come in different languages and they're also free. So at no cost. Let's see. Another resource will be a new book that we have, which is really exciting. It's Cancer and Occupational Therapy, Enabling Performance and Participation Across the Lifespan. That's a really exciting book that just recently came out. And so I highly recommend it. You'll learn a lot about common treatments common symptoms, different populations, pediatrics, young adults, older adults, different treatment plans, and they have some case studies in there. So I highly recommend getting that book. There's also articles and CEUs through AOTA. And I believe they even have like badges for oncology too, where you have to take multiple CEU courses to get badges. Uh, There's a Facebook group, Onc for OT, and I'm in there and there's always there. Yeah. So definitely adding to that group. And the other thing I would recommend, I love conferences and some conferences have oncology tracks. So Mm. you get to get the list of all of these courses that are for individuals trying to learn more about oncology. So AOTA has those. ACRM also has an oncology track. So there might be some other ones that you might attend. So I would check in and see if they offer those specialized tracks. Yeah, it just makes me so excited for our profession to know how many 
resources are out there and how that's such a growing library. And that there's, from my perspective, it just seems like there's more and more therapists focusing on this area. And I'm just so thankful for that because, like we said at the beginning, we just know anecdotally just from our lives how huge this need is. So I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing and the work of all your colleagues in this oncology world who are really pushing us forward in this area. It's an exciting time. And we know from statistics that there's a very large number of cancer survivors. A couple of years ago in 2019, there was an estimated 16.9 million cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. And in the next couple of years, by 2030, it's going to be 22.2 million. That's a huge number. And, and I feel that they're, uh, we're everywhere. We're, we're working with people. We are in school. We are in the grocery stores. And you will never know because a lot of what's happened, it's an invisible disability. Mm-hmm. You can't tell if someone's experiencing mental illness as a result of cancer or fatigue uh, or chemo brain, chemo brain. You can't see a lot of these things. As a T, sometimes we're able to spot them, right? Yeah. But the general population, it, it's invincible. You, you really can, can't see these issues. And, and we're seeing more and more cancer survivors survivors being vocal about it. They're saying, I, I live through cancer and I'm proud of that. But now what's next? Mm-hmm. What do I go after this diagnosis? How do I, how do I continue living life again? Like it can't be the same as before. Now I feel like I have a new purpose or I'm dealing with all these chronic issues. How do I move on and have a good, normal life? And, and they're being vocal about it. So I think mm-hmm. for OTs, it's a really great opportunity to, to step in and be able to guide these individuals who who are saying that they have this need and they're being unmet by the system, by the medical system. And I think at whatever level, whether it's in a hospital or in a community or at a small clinic where there's multiple comorbidities and one of them is cancer, or it's someone that we're just seeing exclusively for cancer. I mean, we can really see them at every um, stage of their cancer care continuum. So there's so much that we can do. And I think it's very powerful that we're able to, to give them hope. And, and I think that's where my personal experience is just tied to all of this too, where I'm like, uh, that's what an OT did for me, gave me hope for the future. And so I'm hoping that I see more and more therapists addressing cancer-related issues with our patients in in any setting. I'm so thankful for you sharing with us your personal journey and just about the care that you provide. We're getting really close to the end of our time today, but I did want to save some time for our rapid-fire questions just as kind of a last way to get to know you, Vanessa. So I'll ask a question and then you can just say the first thing that pops to your mind. What is the first sentence that you usually say to your patients? Oh, it's a good one. Um, Well, besides like introducing OT and what we do, I I just ask like, you know, how, how, how has cancer impacted your life? And I really do a lot of validation in the, in the first part of our initial visit. I feel like that just helps us connect and and build trust in that therapeutic relationship. So it's a lot of validation going on. And what's usually the last thing that you say at the end of a session? Oh, I typically say you're not alone. There's a lot of people that care, want to help you, and that are going to be with you in this process. I feel like giving them reassurance and letting them know that it takes a village and there's a lot of us that are going to be there for them. And what's your favorite assessment to do? That one's hard. COPM and several moho assessments. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to choose. It's hard to choose. <laughs> and what's your favorite OT intervention? Um, I love doing mental health interventions, helping people mm. cope with cancer. Yeah. Is there something that you've read recently that has inspired your OT practice? There is actually, I read a recent article. Um, I believe the author was uh, Nakagaki et al. 
Um, and this, that was this year where they incorporated OT as part of this outpatient multidisciplinary program. And it went so well that it actually got funded in Australia. And so that was really exciting to see that. And then there's another article, article too, that reminded me of minorities and how they struggle within this cancer world and specifically the Latinx community, Latinx community, where there's all these barriers like navigating the political system, economic and language barrier on top of cancer and this healthcare system. So it's just another reminder to look at these these populations. Mm -hmm. And lastly, how do you hope a patient feels after your first visit? I hope they feel hopeful, empowered, and and not alone. I want them to know that they're, they're supported, that whether things go good or bad, that, that they're, they're not alone. There's always going to be people around them. Mm. Well, Vanessa, I felt so encouraged by our conversation today, and I know that our listeners are feeling that way too. Is there any last thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, th- this practice uh, setting can take an emotional toll. Mm. Law therapists, and and that's a very normal feeling because as human beings, we connect with each other and we develop these beautiful relationships and it's hard to lose them or to lose a person throughout services or, or after any services, but remembering that in their difficult in, the, in someone's difficult life or at this point in time in their life where they're going through cancer, you are able to be a light and to provide hope and comfort and you made a difference in their lives. So I think it's it's a very difficult but very rewarding area to, to, be, to be working in. And I really hope that I see more people, not necessarily just exclusively in oncology, but just seeing more patients with a cancer diagnosis. Well, that's... That's so beautiful. And thank you again for all the hope that you give to your patients in the way that you've encouraged us today. Uh, I, I am so glad to be here and to be talking about this. It's just so such a special, special setting to be working in. And, and I, I hope I, I get to hear from people and see um, what sort of questions or experiences they've had. Mm. I love to talk about cancer care. So people can always reach me through social media, LinkedIn or email. I'm excited to talk about it more. Good. Yep. And we'll leave that on our course page so people can access that. Well, thank you, Vanessa. And hopefully we talk again soon. Thank you, Sarah. It was great being here. I really appreciate you having me. Wow, you all, I was so moved by this topic. And as we talked about throughout the podcast, the need in this area is so great. And I'm so thankful to people like Vanessa who are really driving our occupational therapy profession forward and utilizing our skill set to support cancer patients along their journey. I hope that you check out the resources that we have listed on the course page and that you feel more empowered and more equipped as you see cancer patients in your practice. If you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. It is currently only $49 to have access to all of our courses and the many resources within the club. So if you are not yet a member, I highly encourage you to sign up. And as always, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.